Hello dear gentle listener. Um, as you probably know, this show is funded by my wonderful Patreon supporters via patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. You too can support the show on Patreon from just £1 a month. This is not a hobby for me, this is work. So if you can afford to support the show, that would be really great. The more patrons I get, the more shows I can make. It's as simple as that. I pay myself to research, record, produce and publish the podcast. I also pay fellow freelance guests a £50 fee for their time and expertise. Patrons get early access to episodes, for example this one's been out for a week already, and extra readings here and there, extended episodes and things like that. They also get access to our Discord server where they can chat about the episodes and to other fans of the show. They also don't get these annoying pleas for your support at the beginning of the show. So head over to patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. Okay, on with the show. It's a great one. Please do also share it if you found this really useful and interesting. It really helps us to find new audiences. Thanks. Hello, dear listener. Just to let you know, we do talk a little bit about sexual violence towards the end of the podcast when we're talking about Aziz Ansari. Um, We kind of allude to forced sex, but we don't go into any detail about the actual activities that he did. Um, Tina does go into that in her book, but that's not something we go into in any great detail in the podcast. I'll try to kind of keep everything as general as possible without losing any of the nuance. But if you do want to skip over that, that's towards the end of the podcast. As soon as you start to hear me talking about Aziz Ansari, that's the bit where you might want to skip for a bit or just turn off if that's not something you want to listen to today. Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships. I think many of us might agree that Me Too has been an important and much needed movement, putting consent and sexual violence, institutional power and gendered power dynamics into our everyday conversations. But in what way has it transformed our understandings of consent and justice and the possibilities for sex? Probably not a lot. It has both uncovered and reinforced very basic and binary notions of consent, justice and sex, and has seemingly got stuck in an endless dialogue which, compared to BLM, is anything but transformative. But what if we really expand the meanings and possibilities of both consent and justice? How can this both prevent harm on an individual level and institutional level? What can we do to learn differently going forward? How can we transform society so that the sociological and legal standard for sex is care, mutuality, co-creation, embodiment and autonomy? Tina Sicker has written an amazing book about this called Sex, Consent and Justice and she joins us today. Welcome Tina. Hi, thank you for having me. I can't tell you how excited I am to, to have you on the show and how wonderful your book is. So first of all, everyone should buy your book. Go buy the book, everyone. Just stop what you're doing, go buy the book. Um, I was wondering whether actually you could just uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to this work and, and what your background is. You're, you're a legal scholar, right? So you're the... No, 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 no. I'm actually um, a, a lecturer in media, culture and heritage. So yeah, I do a lot of work in that in that area, and so the media portion that that is in the book, where I take the case studies, are reflected in in that work. But my my focus of my of my work is around, um, oddly enough, it's around um, science studies. So I do a lot of work in climate change and health studies, but consent started to pop up a lot, um, particularly around. Uh, privacy and content for health um, in in terms of health data, Mm. and then also intergenerational justice and consent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then my area, my my interest in restorative justice 
combined with that with my media work and and it sort of came up and 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 this book was was um created yeah yeah well it's um it's such an interesting perspective it it kind of it really the reason that i just assumed actually that you're a legal scholar is um is just how uh like precisely you have talked about um how the law uh treats uh consent how how um how it's both defined uh by the law but also used in in um, the criminal justice system mm-hmm. um and uh yeah well I've, yeah anyway i really liked it basically it's based oh, it's already transforming my work <laughs> and i finished reading it yesterday so um okay so one of the so what i kind of like to start with is i guess i think it's chapter two in your book which is where you go through lots of different models of consent yeah. And I just found that really interesting and useful. Um, and then we're going to get to a, a model of consent that you're bringing that you're bringing in this book, which is which is center, which is going to which is uh, the uh, pleasure and care centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness. So I guess what we we'll do is go through the different kind of models of consent that you bring up in this chapter in order to get to this bit and we explain it because this <laughs> is like a really key parts of understanding uh both your book but also um how we might move forward with me in me too and consent and sex so first of all it kind of started so consent in the olden days ye olde times started around uh, property law and it was around it was kind of like uh, to do with uh, ownership and wrongful violation of consent because it's owned by someone's consent is owned by someone mm-hmm. um but then uh, there is a, and so uh, fans of the show might know uh, a med- resident medieval historian has talked about this. Uh, Eleanor Yanagar has kind of written about this on her blog. Go check that out, going-medieval.com. Um, but then we kind of get to a more, the, the first kind of, uh, kind of notions of consent, which where it goes beyond um, just property but it is that this kind of liberal idea of consent is that we as our liberal individuals who are all equally free to choose to do things or not do things that's like the first kind of model isn't it and and there's already something very wrong with this already even though it's an improvement from the property model that's already there's already quite a lot wrong Mm -hmm. with this isn't there could you tell us a bit more about that yeah, it, it, it sort of is this idea that, you know, we're all self-possessed, disembodied actors that are making choices about what kind of engagements we engage in um, from a very symmetrical set of, of power relations that we're, yeah. you know, it's all on the level. And, and so that exercise of agency is thought to be, you know, a, a, a liberal exercise of agency. And so there's this idea that consent in that way does a lot of things that aren't very helpful. Hmm. So, um, you know, a few of the things that it does is that it, um, it's not very robust. It's very formal in its in its construction. So um, we're not talking about equity or justice. It's just, you know, the theory of consent and how we actually engage in it and the practice of consent in the world is very separate from each other. Um, and so we, we have that issue. I think uh, one of the things that I have. Um, 
in terms of the way consent works in practice is that it replicates the mind-body binary. So it's mm -hmm. this idea that we're making this choice in our heads. It's all very rational. Mm -hmm. And the um, emotional part, which tends to be coded feminine, mm -hmm. is not to be trusted. It's, it's secondary. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it, it also can um, perpetuate very heteronormative and ethno ethnocentric structures mm -hmm. because it's consent that is Western and heterosexual. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's based yeah. on this idea of the, of the autonomous individual as well, isn't it? Yeah. That, that um, it is entirely separate from someone else. And as do a lot of these other models that we'll, that we'll come to too. And then, but then there are some crucial models that we're going to talk about in a minute where, where we don't have that, which where I will go double thumbs up on the Zoom call uh, while we're chatting because it's something that I get very excited about. So... I guess the next level, I, I suppose, would be is where we talk about discourse. So as Foucault would say, we are living in a, we all live in culture where there are inherent power relations uh, and um, those power relations exist within white hetero uh, patriarchy. Um, and so that can make consent more difficult. So some people are afforded more agency, more uh, ability to choose than others. And so that makes this kind of, that means that this kind of liberal idea of consent that we're all equally free to choose to do things is also not true. So that's something that we might all be a bit more familiar with. Can you tell us a bit more about, about that and, and, uh, and uh, what, that open, what that opens up and also what that might close down to? Yeah, and you put it perfectly. That's the, the thing that the assumption built in the liberal model is that we are, we are all agential actors that are autonomous and able mm -hmm. to exercise choice from a level of equality. And we know that society is organized in a way that we've all got different elements or, or, or kind of flows of power that are very different based on our gender, our class, our race, ability, sexuality. So even when we're saying that, you know, did this person say yes or did they consent it's it's always important to think about you know from from a position of what yeah um and and that the the danger there though is that if you push it too far then you can get into the very sort of radical feminist that by nature women cannot consent because they are in a relation of power where they are inherently disempowered so we don't want to say that, no. but, but we, we do want to say that there is um, power dynamics there that the consent model does not address. Exactly. So um, when I wrote a long, excoriating blog post on my website for sex educators, uh, bishtraining.com, I'll include a link to this in, uh, uh, in the show notes, dear listener, about the teen consent video. I talked about all of the things that are missing in the teen consent video. It might be something, I'm not going to tell everyone what it is, but basically I was saying, like a lot of people, I imagine going around to Nigella Lawson's and her making a cup of tea, her making me a cup of tea. And I really, really fancy Nigella Lawson, but our, our, our social locations are very, very different. So um, this would be perhaps more interesting if our genders were reversed, because I am, you know, a cisgender straight guy. Uh, but Nigella is wealthy. I'd be in her house. Uh, she is famous. Um, she, in that sense, has 
greater power, according to mm-hmm. me. And also, I would discipline myself around this too. And I would say, I even if she made the tea and it was awful, and you know she put the milk in at the same time as the hot water and made it in a mug and not in a pot, I would feel like I would have to drink that tea because there's a power dynamic going on. And mm-hmm. I think that's a very basic way of understanding this but that's not to say that it's not possible for me to consensually drink tea with nigella there are lots of things that we could be doing Mm -hmm. so i guess the next thing we could talk about a way of uh, a a way that people have sought to try to uh, acknowledge that there are these uh, power dynamics yet we also need to be to use some kind of technologies to use some kind of uh, processes to help us uh, obviate these power dynamics or to help us navigate power dynamics is to first of all talk about this term affirmative consent or enthusiastic consent mm-hmm. um, and that's something that people kind of reach for quite quickly uh, when we're talking about consent I've never been a fan of it at all but could you tell us about again some of the problems with this some of the things it might give us but also some of the problems with it too yeah and I think they're they are quite quite similar um, and they've been you know written into a lot of university directives around um, education and also um, for dealing with any cases of sexual assault um, where, where the idea is it's a basically a yes means yes no means no model um, which is very binary again um, and, and and doesn't do a lot in terms of attending to the other uh, shortcomings of consent. It's still disembodied. It still replicates the mind-body binary and then adds a yes or no um, onto it. And it just doesn't happen like that. Like the, that, that um, in, in practice that, that you know, that, that there is this sense that sex as a, as, as a process and something that is sort of pushes boundaries and is risky and there's, you know, um, there's a sense of negotiation that's happening that the yes means yes, no means no, doesn't work in practice. And, and I think it's quite limiting as well. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. It was something that I was talking with uh, Catherine Angel about earlier this year when uh, talking about um, tomorrow's sex will be good again. Um, but it's also something I kind of got from uh, Catherine Liu wrote a really uh, a great polemical book about this, about the professional managerial class called Virtue Hoarding. And so there's a whole chapter in there about the affirmative and enthusiastic con- kind of consent models. And it just seems to me that it is like a, a it's it's... It seems well-meaning, but it is trying to replace bad discourse with a good discourse, and that this is the kind of thing that we all should do without ever actually thinking, well, is this how we actually have sex, or is this mm-hmm. how we do consent? And it does seem completely untethered to to reality. Yet it is also a stick which people are beaten with if they if they say that 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 they find it tricky. There is a certain degree of like social capital, I think, going on here too. Mm-hmm. But also, as you say, it reinforces that mind, uh, yeah, that mind-body um, binary. But it also reinforces the other binaries, like the seeker of consent and the giver of consent, and the active person and the passive person. Yep, so it's very gendered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we and, might, yeah, go on. No, I, I was also, you know, that that was exactly where I was going to go with it. Was was yeah. that sense that like who is saying yes and who is saying no? That it 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 reinforces gender scripts and gender stereotypes of, of you know, the, the, the women as, and so then again, it's sort of very heteronormative, but then again, it's the women saying like yes or no, 
Um, and then it also, like, it, it does reinforce these kind of um, stereotypes about men as sexually aggressive as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that can be a problem. And, and that it's racialized in, in the sense that, you know, consent and who can say yes and who can be, say no is, is um, you know, wasn't afforded to enslaved women. Um, and, and, you know, that, that, that model of consent has to attend to those um, histories of, of racism as well. Yeah, um, completely agree. Um... And also, it kind of it it denies it it gives agency to to men, and it denies agency to women, and so it does that thing of just being kind of, although it tries to advance beyond the discourse we were just talking about, um, it actually it actually gets stuck there, um, mm-hmm. in that thing in in that thing of that that there's it, that consent isn't possible when there is a power dynamic, and you know, of course it is. We would say, and we go on to kind of to demonstrate this. There's just another thing, actually, before I move on to communicative, communicative, communicative consent. Easy for me to say. Uh, if we could talk about queering consent as well, because it's really interesting. Uh, bit. So the when we talk about consent and discourse, uh, we are talking about this very uh, heteronormative um, discourse of what sex is, who has it, why we have it. Uh, but then when we think about, as we talk a lot about the show, uh, the outside of the of Gail Rubin's charmed circle of non-normative sexualities, we can see how uh, there is the possibility for queering consent too, isn't there? Yeah. Both through things like BDSM and also non-normative sexual practices. But also to bring in this uh, another Foucauldian idea, isn't it? The, the idea of the care of the self or technologies of the self. Mm-hmm. Could you say a bit more about the, the, those kinds of possibilities that, that, at this point too? Yeah, I particularly find the, the BDSM um, interesting because it's all often taken as an example of perfect consent mm. because everything is negotiated and written down and there's safe words and so it's this idea that can we bring that in and, and I think that it doesn't quite work like that because it's a, it's a very specific kind of act that has uh, and subculture, so there's not only the sex that happens, um, but also uh, the subculture around it. And so those norms have grown organically from the subculture. And so it's this idea that no, since it happens here, it can happen, you know, in this other context. Um, is it's it's quite divided. Um, and I think that yeah, so so care of the self. Um, being something that is quite um, important uh, when it when it comes to Foucault and his work, and thinking about ways in which um, a queer sexuality, one that, and by queer, it's just this idea of pushing up against the norms and the and the very constraining structures under which we try to regulate sex. Mm-hmm. Um, that if we can kind of look at and not to to push all of all of the rules away or all of the norms away but to think about ones that are more endogenous and ones that focus on cultivating um pleasure and then also mm-hmm. uh cultivating relations uh yeah. with others yeah yeah, the um, dear listener, um, if you've not heard the episodes before, me and Meg John record an episode about kink, uh, where we talk about um, consent uh, there too. But also the interview I did with uh, Joy Townsend about uh, called Her Sexual Self, where we talk about um, 
sexual subjectivities. We kind of talk about this as well. It's the this thing about consent being the possibility for making and remaking ourselves, and that that's like a that kind of thing is a. I guess it's a way of navigating this discourse that we we're talking about, wasn't it? And that there are potentials for doing that. And I really like the idea of making and remaking the self. That that. Mm that that is what sex, sex is doing. And so it in and of itself makes it difficult to regulate. Um, and so the idea is how best to make sure that everyone is um, having pleasure and then also feel safe um, and also is able to engage from a level of relative equality. Yeah. yeah. But we're still kind of talking about this this uh, individual self aren't we at this point as well there are possibilities that this self might do might make and remake themselves uh, and to be able to apply that to consensual sex there are a couple of other um, couple of other kind of ideas that we, we need to get through which also kind of refer still refer to this idea of um, like the the uh, the liberal individual subject um, so one is communicative consent. So this is kind of taking affirmative enthusiastic consent and it's saying, okay, well, what if there was more talking about what we do before, like you were just talking about with like BDSM, with things like, you know, the yes, no, maybe lists or the uh, here are my safe words. or um, uh, But also there's a possibility here where we start talking about nonverbal communication as well, isn't there? Mm -hmm. um, so could you, uh, again... Give us a brief overview of some of the some of the some of the advantages and disadvantages of this approach as well. It'd be great. Yeah, it's it's really about like the ideal speech situation that you get in like pragmatics and, and in some like areas of discourse studies. It's this idea that you know for uh, a better kind of polity, um, you need to refine the way in which communication is engaged and how it how it occurs. And so it it does borrow a lot from the B BDSM. Um, framework as well. So it's this idea that, okay, we are going to talk about what's going to happen before it happens. And then we are going to agree whether or not we want to engage in it and, and then go forward. And you get the same problems, you know, with the idea of yes means yes, no means no, very binary. Um, you know, it's very formalistic. That doesn't necessarily have to be a barrier, but when it when it occurs in a way that, again, reinforces gender asymmetry. And then it also is like, do you get a yes after every 10 minutes or like for each event or each thing? Like that that kind of thing I think is, is very, and, and yeah, and then also, you know, is it, does it have to be verbal? Can it be embodied? A lot of times um, it's this idea that yes, bodily cues are important um, and you know that again becomes a bit of an issue when you're when you're thinking about how it might be litigated later you know right. like how does that work yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and we're kind of when we're talking about uh, verbal cues we are kind of getting on to the some of the areas that uh, that I, I think interest us me, me and you both um, and and see as like a way forward um, but we also need to talk about uh, sexual autonomy and sexual integrity. So this was this is kind of to do with like uh, literally our capacity to choose, isn't it? The our just how much um, I guess in in my book, um, uh, 
can we talk about consent, dear listener? My book for young people, please buy it. Um, uh, we would talk about you know having the the ability to have the free the freedom to choose, which is an inherent part of the certainly the UK um, definition of uh, the UK law uh, definition of consent. So, sexual autonomy is it's it the 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 having that uh, the capacity and the freedom to choose is also a very important model that uh, that people are kind of relied on, I guess. Yeah, I would say that it is a, like a capacity. Um, mm -hmm. So it's this idea that we have to create conditions under which the capacity to shape and control one's sexual lives and choices um, that, that are based on the, the reasons that the person thinks are significant to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so that's moved into... Um, the, the I'll kind of bunch the final two together because there are certainly some overlaps, but we'll talk about embodied sexual autonomy. Sorry, I can't read my notes. Um, and also feminist new materialism, which is, mm -hmm. I think, the first time I've actually properly introduced this idea on the show. So at some point we're going to have to try to... It's, it's a messy thing to talk about, so we'll have to try and chat about it. But at this point, we are moving away from the idea of uh, there being individual A interacting with individual B and that both of them know what it is that they want and don't want to do and that that's what sex is and that mm -hmm. that's how that's how we've presented it so far in the, in the consent models but actually that's not how sex works is it it's a it's an unfolding uh it's an, an unfolding like uh, Catherine Angel says like conversation which emerges between two people and it's in that kind of the the coupling and the embodiment of this happening where the possibility for consent emerges and so we have to be able to have a an understanding of consent that that um that that that, that helps that covers this so first of all with just embodied sexual autonomy like what are we talking about there the that we're talking here about that that we put the the brain and the, the, and the body back the mind and the body back together don't we at this point yeah yeah because sexual autonomy this idea that you know it's the capacity to choose um, it, it's still very much rooted in a liberal model um, yeah. through through all of it. And so then um, people would, would sort of say, okay, how can we push this forward? And embodied autonomy is to sort of say, okay, can, can we kind of reintroduce um, the body and affect and, and think of what is communicated through the body as not secondary to the mind, to the rational? Um, and so it's this idea that can we uh, exercise and, and create a way to um, engage in sex um, for reasons that, that are important to the person, but it is defined in relation. So it's always in relation to, um, and that the body is as significant as the mind and, and that they're inextricably linked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's so if we, dear listener, if you think about any sexual activity or any sensual activity you may have had, it's not as if your brain is going, "Oh, this is a thing that I'm enjoying. I'm going to continue doing this." It's that that the that they are, you know, really to understand being in the moment and being present with our body is to understand that we are this kind of whole rather than dividing ourselves off. Mm -hmm. But also that here, again, it gets away from this idea of um, uh, we going into sexual encounters knowing exactly what it is that we want which we don't as again as Catherine Angel points out you know there's a huge pressure particularly on women now with up for it feminism to that the new kind of 
sex positivity is, has kind of given uh, young women and women generally a, a new rule, which is that you must know exactly what it is that you want and to be able to clearly articulate it, which is terrible. Uh, doesn't, that's not how any of this works and also shouldn't be holding people to that kind of impossible standard. Uh, and there's tremendous, well, there's huge risks of doing that too, as Catherine points out. But also, but here to again to bring in feminist new materialism, which is something mm. now you might have to bear with me, dear listener, because I'm this is pretty complex and I'm just getting my head around this myself, but it is fascinating. It's the idea that we don't have agency in this kind of predetermined way, agency happens, our, our self happens as doing. So we, so I've just said here, we are the thing we are doing, and doing is, is the we as well, and the us. So that, and because sex is this kind of, like a hug or a greeting, it's not one person doing a thing to another. It's two people doing a thing, which results in this. It's co-creative. It, it, and and it's in, and it's embodied and it's relational. That, that's. And also, also, it's indeterminate as well, isn't it? Am I getting any of this right, Tina? Yeah, yeah, you are, you are. <laughs> and what, what I think a lot of feminist new materialism tries to do um, is there was this, um, in a lot of cultural studies scholarship, there was this division between it's all discourse, it's all language, and it is Marxist materialism. Hmm. And so... Uh, a lot of scholars were sort of like, well, you can't choose because this is a, the binary that we're all trying to get beyond anyways. How can we sort of say that something is material, affective, phenomenological, but also is discursive? So how we talk about it is important as well. And so feminist new materialism tries to create sometimes new words to... Yeah talk about relations in different areas um, that attend to how things are both discursive and material at the same time. Yep. Yeah. So uh, that, that, there's a term material discursive, isn't there, which is all one word now, which is kind mm -hmm. of used to kind of to present this. And it gets at this, I think the other reason why this is like an important thing to bring in here is that um, sex is different to pretty much any other any other thing any any other activity we might do with someone else or in or indeed with ourselves because the indeterminacy of sex the not knowing where it's going to take us or not knowing what's going to happen not knowing where our where we're going to shift what's going to happen in our body and also that it has this capacity of that unknowing means that there's a possibility for our bodies to do things we weren't able to even know we could do you know it gives us this sense of um really transformed sense of selves it's really messy and it's really and it's in and because of also the realm of the role of fantasy and but also what's happening with the other person in that dynamic it means that uh it's incredibly yeah it's incredibly kind of woozy and and not something that we can easily describe as well, certainly this idea of person A knowing what they want and person B knowing what they want and doing it together just doesn't work for that, does it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's this idea that that is the best part of it. 
it, we right. shouldn't be trying to sort of rationalize it away. Um, and, and so that's why it, feminist new materialists, instead of talking about like reason and emotion, they'll talk about affect and they'll talk about intensities and flows. Um, and, and they're really trying to create this new vocabulary to um, figure out how, how things are different. I think um, one of the areas that does a really good job and, you know, for people who are interested in just talking about affects and flows um, is in, in research and scholarship on feminist new materialism and exercise. Um, because particularly for runners, so that there's this, this scholarship that, that talks about um, affect and intensities in, in that way as well. But the relation is not with another person, it's with nature. So they're still using the same kind of language to talk about how you can't talk about one person having these, these um, reactions, that it is in connection with what they're wearing and where they're moving and the pavement and yeah. Yeah, and, and so this is, we're, we're talking here about assemblages as well, aren't we? <laughs> so again, uh, let's just try to unpack this for the listener. So it's the idea that we, that um, our bodies is in relation to lots and lots of different things all the time. So this is a kind of, uh, uh, I guess it's a Deleuze and Guattari kind of, uh, well, it's certainly it com- assemblages comes from uh, their term, which is I think agencement, but we say assemblages in... Uh, in- or the rhizome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. rhizome is, is a good kind of visual way of imagining it. Uh, so rhizomes are kind of plants which have lots of kind of interconnected roots that aren't kind of hierarchical, but they're kind of deeply interconnected with each other and have mm-hmm. a relationship with lots of other plants in soil. They were really into bushes, weren't they? And they didn't like trees. That's the thing to remember. So we're not trees, which are completely distinct from everything else and stand up apparently... They start out hating trees and then they end up liking trees. But we're yeah. much more like bushes <laughs> that all kind of deeply interconnect. So when it comes to sex, we there is a sexual assemblage. And there's a really good paper about it, dear listener. Again, I'll put in the show notes where when two people come to have a kiss with each other, the assemblage includes the lips of one person, the lips of the other person, the past experiences that they have of kissing other people, what's going on in the room, their gendered places, their racialized um, location in society. Um, are they in public? Are they being seen? Is this uh, okay for them to do? Um, what does this mean for their relationship? Does this bring them closer together? They are So those two people having this kiss are in constant relation with all of these other things in an assemblage. Have I? Is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that, that um, they, they often take it one step further to say that outside of those relations that what gives you your sense of self is a product of those relations there's no a priori self that exists that that any sense of individuality you have is a product of relations um, with beings and non-beings so other other people with animals with the environment so there's this this aspect of feminist new materialism that has uh, an environmental uh, focus to it as well and so this brings us to, so all of these models we've kind of talked about so far, you kind of, it, it feels like in, in this, we're only really talking about one chapter, but it's a big chapter mm-hmm. uh, in your book. Um, it's like, it's almost as if, it feels like you've kind of taken um, some of the the most valuable or the most useful of, of these approaches and put them into this uh, this phrase, 
pleasure, a pleasure and care-centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness. Uh, yeah, I need an acronym, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, you know, I've got, I, uh, I always use the expression uh, to talk about um, whenever I, on this show, whenever I talk about uh, the, the feeling of falling in love, you know, the biological processes of falling in love, I always say, well, it's a micro moment of positivity resonance, isn't it? And so we have to know that. So after a while, it trips off the tongue, mm-hmm. I think. So yeah. we just have to say it over and over again. Pleasure and care-centered ethic, ethic of embodied mm-hmm. and relational sexual otherness. So... Uh, let's get into just unpacking what this is uh, because it's uh, super important. So, um, first of all, you, we have a broad understanding of pleasure, don't we? So we're not saying mm-hmm. that all sex has to be about necessarily orgasm or mutual sexual arousal. It's this broader concept of is it is it broadly pleasurable either at that moment or later or in the broader scheme of what's going on for those people involved? That's right, isn't it? Yeah, and I really wanted to make sure that it it made room for sex that was done because someone wanted to do something for their partner Mm -hmm. um, or for procreation or Mm -hmm. for sex work. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it doesn't necessarily have to um, fit the the sort of pleasurable in the sense of, of, yes, the orgasm, yeah. And it's really great. It's, uh, yeah, so it's it's sex worker inclusive and, and also it's it's ace inclusive too a lot of asexual folk or people on the asexuality spectrum might be in relationships where there is a degree of uh, of sexual contact sexual experience but they might be it might be one person doing something for their partner or you know we, we know that uh that just in long-term relationships this might happen too um and so and then we get to the to the care-centered ethic i don't think i need us to kind of unpack ethic but mm-hmm. the but that the but the i guess what we're saying here is that if we see consent as pleasure and care centered it's the it's what processes are in place that are doing care and allowing for care to happen right and that yeah and prepare for self and other um yeah. so so that you know really highlighting the fact that things are happening happening in relation to Um, and also in relation to oneself Um, and that always in the background is the idea that the self is you know constituted by Mm -hmm. others and and other relations and flows and affects but but to the extent that we have a sense of self that ethic of care and and um, feeling um, cared for and caring for others is important yeah um, and then that it talks about this, the thing we were just talking about, that, that is um, embodied and relational. Um, so that um, uh, just looking at your at the, the list that you have in, in your book, point six, re- it reflects how sex is an embodied as opposed to solipsistic practice that is also relational yep. and co-determinative and contextual. Um, and thereby re- requiring an accounting of an equal power relations. So... That's a really important bit. This is the bit where we say it's material discursive. So it is that, okay, we're not saying power relations no longer exist uh, in this model. We're saying they definitely do. And that is part of the assemblage. That is part of, that is what's, that is as much part of it as anything else. And that is something we yeah. need to take account of. Um, yeah. And then is there anything you want to also say about the, the idea of otherness as well? So it's capital O, otherness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so which implies it's uh it's it's a bigger word than 
just another person being there. Yeah, it's a, it's this idea that you have like a an ethical and an epistemic obligation to the other that that you have to treat them as a subject that has a an, an ethical status mm-hmm. um, that that has to be taken into consideration and it has to be taught and it has to be normalized. So one of the things that I you know w- would like to kind of look at more is how this can be um, you know created into a more of a pedagogical uh, format. Um, right. Yeah. All of this so all of this so far this conversation has led us so far to this really important thing that we've just unpacked. It's a pleasure and care centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness. Either that is our new definition of consent or something which goes beyond consent and a, a model, a standard which is both sociological but also pretend, the, the, has the possibility of being a legal standard too, I think you argue in the book. Yeah. Uh, in, this kind of, in, in this broader sense of justice that we're going to talk about next. Okay, remember that again. I'm going to say it again, dear listener. Pleasure and care-centered ethic, ethic <laughs> of embodied and relational sexual otherness. Right. Okay. So we just before we talk about restorative and the possibilities of transformational justice, let's just talk briefly about the carceral system. So carceral is basically when you hear the word carceral, just think of um, uh, police, prosecution, courts, prisons. That's kind of what we mean, isn't yeah. it? When it's uh, and so uh, there are a lot of what we've talked about so far, and a lot of so a lot of those the. Uh, so, for example, the affirmative and enthusiastic consent models are still within this idea of what it is to have legally consensual sex, right? And that it is that these things have to be in place in order for them to be legal. And they do form part of legal codes in certain states in the US and um, I think in Canada, you were saying, and so mm-hmm. also in universities, I think. Well, certainly in universities in the States. Um, so, but this the carceral system really really fails when it comes to um justice around consent and sex mm-hmm. and you probably dear listener know about the incredibly low uh rates of um successful prosecutions for rapes um so but it kind of goes beyond that doesn't it tina yeah yeah it does that that um that that any research that you take a look at in terms of uh women and their experience, and men, um, and people who are non-binary and, and trans, that, that if you um, look at their particularly um, qualitative research into their experience of the criminal justice system, when there is gender-based violence or any kind of sexual violence, is that yes, they, that it is very re-traumatizing, that it is um, very, very low clear-up rates um, that they find that it doesn't give them any sense of justice or, 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 or wellness sort of after the event um, and that it just does, is not fit for purpose, yeah. And also for the perpetrator, they, um, they get punished, but they, they don't, there's no opportunity for learning, um, <laughs> Uh, for um, for truly making amends for for them to transform either, um, yeah. and when when things get as far as and this was certainly the case with the um, like the Harvey Weinstein case which you go into in the book there were like initial apologies or 
initial kinds of attempts at early stages of accountability from Harvey Weinstein. But then when the criminal cases started coming in, obviously then his legal team say, okay, well, we need to double down. We're not doing that anymore. We're fighting this case. And so it becomes this binary of, okay, we're going to fight this. And then so the uh, the accuser and the defendant. And so we get into into that binary, which and that process can go on for so long that it becomes so, as you said just now, incredibly re-traumatizing for the survivor as well. Mm-hmm. And there is a sense that not only um, is there no transformation for for the per- perpetrator and no sense of um, uh, justice or feeling uh, or restitution for the for the survivor, the institutions in which those things happen go completely untrammeled, don't they? So the institution that have that that uh, so Harvey Weinstein's uh, sexual offences, we can say, or acts of sexual violence, happen within the like, casting couch culture of Hollywood, right? Where it was, where, and so, and 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 that is has got off completely scot free, hasn't it? Because we have this like carceral approach. Yeah, and it's that that liberal model happening again, where it's the individual person engaging in the act, and 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 then they get punished, and then we're done. Um, and that's not really doing anything with respect to repair or bringing uh, a, a community back to to being whole in a way, because it's the community also that suffers. And so um, we want to kind of think about ways in which we can um, affect justice that is working for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. It also, just this kind of approach also, and we've kind of hinted at this before, so we might not need to say a great deal about it, but this kind of approach also um, reinforces very racialized ideas of like who is the, like the in inverted commas, the ideal victim and who is the ideal perpetrator mm-hmm. too. So mm-hmm. uh, perhaps you might want to say a bit more about that here too, that the castle yep. system doesn't treat people fairly. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's the, you know, very much rooted in, 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 um, in, in slavery as well and colonialism, this idea of um, the other, the the black man in particular, is being coded as um, aggressive and and dangerous, and the white woman that that sort of idea that there could never be a relationship between a black man and a white woman <clears throat> under slavery, and that that kind of myth sort of permeates all of what we see now, and the ideal victim being one that you know it is a you know on a dark street and it's a, a, a stranger and, and you know, most sexual violence happens with people we know, um, not the, the violent stranger as well. And that stranger is often racialized um, also. And, and then we do have the inequalities in the criminal justice system that, that reflect that. Um, and so we really have to, to think about, you know, how we want to, to deal with um, sexual violence from a cultural and a, a policy and a, a interpersonal um, perspective. Uh, let's, so we've expanded our possibilities for consent and what that might look like with the scrolls back up the page because I still can't remember it all. The pleasure and care-centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness. Let's expand what justice might look like. So the carceral system completely lets people down and also creates further harms and re-entrenches harms institutionally and in society but what are the possibilities for restorative slash transformational justice i know they're not the same 
term, but perhaps you might be able to kind of talk about how that these some some of these kinds of approaches both operate. They do sometimes operate within the criminal justice system, don't they? In 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 some um, in in some places, but they also operate very much outside of uh, what we call the carceral system too. Mm-hmm. What kinds of things does this look like, and how does it? And also, where does it come from? Really importantly. Yeah. Um... Restorative justice and transformational justice sort of takes a more society and institutional wide. So it might, you know, talk about transform, transforming society as a whole. Restorative justice is a little bit more focused on the criminal justice system. Um, and so it has different, different sources, but um, a lot of the research that I've been looking into is um, work around restorative justice coming out of indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how that has been worked into some particularly young offenders, um, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to create models that are not going to just put someone in in jail and and sort of leave them there, um, that we want to try to find ways to repair and restore uh, communities, and that the best way to do it is to find models in which accountability can be um, taken on, mm-hmm. on the part of the, the accused, um, and that there can be a, a kind of um, relation and a conversation and a process so that healing can, can happen. Mm-hmm. And, that, and then having the, the person accused reintegrated into the community. And so it does come from that indigenous model, particularly in Canada, where I'm from, but also um, the Maori in New Zealand, um, and also indigenous communities in Australia yeah. and in the States. So it's important to, uh, I mean, I know there have been accusations that it, it kind of appropriates this, but, um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, but, but it's, it's just important to know where it, come, where it comes from and, 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 and why this might be really important you know we have we have had uh, you know white supremacy and colonialism and uh which has imposed these kinds of carceral systems that we have at the moment so a lot of uh uh folk from indigenous communities might feel extraordinarily pissed off that this might be something that we're all talking about but it's like uh, this this is the kind of the acknowledging that part of of this before mm-hmm. we talk about you know it's a good idea, so it's the kind of thing that we should be doing. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion and like the critiques that it is a kind of appropriation, which in a way it is, mm. um, and also that it's an idealized mm. form. And the appropriation, like the problem with the appropriation, is potentially that you know that the cultural practices from which it it arose that we're sort of cutting off that history and that context. And we're just using it for our purposes, and I think that that becomes a problem. So we have to really be attentive to to that. But it is also kind of part of the. Uh, it's always been something which we we need to think about with the ab- the abolitionist uh, movement. That you know mm-hmm. that having building more prisons uh, and having and f- funding more police officers is is not the way forward. Um, and also the originators of Me Too. So it was Tarana Burke who originally yeah. came up with the the, the hashtag, wasn't it? like 10 years uh, mm-hmm. before the current iteration, has never been a carceral feminist, never. Yeah, yeah, that's right. She's, she's a prison abolitionist and she, she is for um, restorative justice practices, um, even when talking about her own trauma uh, and, and sort of acknowledges that. And so to see Me Too take this carceral turn, I mean, it, 
it is consistent with like the the anti-porn movement for example mm -hmm. um you know where, where you you have these feminists you know joining hands with these arch conservatives mm -hmm. um you know for particular ends but i i think that um the best kind of feminist work that i've seen is ones that that engage with um restorative justice and has greater potential for sol solidaristic solidarity mm -hmm. solidaristic mm -hmm. practices um okay so um so we have these ideas of uh, restorative transformational justice that are around things like you know um acknowledging that that someone did something uh an apology as a, a making an amends making amends uh, there might be mediation, there might be education, perhaps therapy, and then this kind of community approach where that's appropriate. Um, that, and this is something that a lot of people might actually have experienced some, some of as well. So what you do in the book, which is uh, the second half of the book, which we're probably going to spend like 10 or 15 minutes on, sadly, but um, <laughs> is to draw out both of these things, both the scrolls up, the pleasure and care-centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness as the standard for what consent might look like or how what could have been better. And so you kind of use several Me Too, famous Me Too examples, and you talk through in this really clear and rich and interesting uh, and really also accessible way, dear listener. So do try and get the book it's so so good i smashed through it yesterday it's uh it's a real rip roaring read for anyone who's interested in this kind of stuff and you apply it to these famous me too cases and so one of those is what you describe as like a really uh one of the the grayer or uh like uh i guess it's like kind of murky or complicated cases which is aziz anzari mm -hmm. so um just to Quick, so Aziz Ansari is a uh, uh, like a, an a, I guess we'd say Asian American, so um, uh, man of color. Uh, I think originated from like family from from India, India. Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, yeah is yeah. Muslim, which I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and he, uh, you might know actually, dear listener, because. Uh, back in the days of the Meg John and Justin podcast, we actually were raving about um, his show, Master of None. Mm -hmm. uh, and we actually did an episode about the first series of Master of None, talking about some of the great things that came out of it. Uh, as part of Me Too, a story uh, was written about him, which fe featured an interview with someone who went on a date with Aziz Ansari and... I mean, I don't know how to describe this. I don't, I don't know how much detail to go into, but basically uh, they went back to his and he did several forceful, uh, what we might say, oh, I don't want to already judge them as non-conceptual non because that's the point of our conversation mm -hmm. here, but several things that, that uh, where she found that her sexual autonomy was being overridden. She reported this back to him afterwards uh, in a text and then told the story um, mm -hmm. uh, a year or two later, I think. So... So thinking about and, and how that and, and so what happened to Aziz Ansari was that he got called out. Um, he had to he there was a certain degree of um, uh, owning up to his side to, to, to the story and, and what happened. But then he was kind of almost like banished for a bit, wasn't he? He kind of went 
quiet. And mm-hmm. He talks about having a period of reflection, I guess. And then he came back, and now he's kind of now he's kind of back. And at least, and he's he incorporates what happened as part of his show, but it's not necessarily going as far as like saying, you know, let's transform, let's do something, you know, let's use this as a as like a really important teaching moment. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of been allowed back into the fold, kind of quietly, hasn't he, without too much fuss. So. Mm-hmm. Let's chat about first of all the standard. So the you know what what could have been happening. So again, applying the standard of pleasure and care centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual loveliness, what could have been different? What might have been what, what if we were to apply this as our standard for all sexual interactions? How might Aziz have acted differently? Yeah, theoretically. Yeah. And, and I make the case that, that, you know, it, I mean, there was a lot of problems also because the, the story that, that, the, that the journalistic story, it broke, broke a lot of journalistic ethics as mm. well because you're supposed to give the other person time, like it, and, and there was, so the anonymity wasn't very tight, like it was just not a very sort of rigorous um, piece. Yeah. And so there was that part of it. But um, there was this, this sense too, because Aziz Ansari in some of his um, public statements afterwards did have that kind of a bit of a, an apologetic uh, mea culpa there and um, since then has done a better job than other comedians of mm-hmm. addressing and attending to issues around this. And I think that the concern was that, you know, that he was this, this person that was very progressive and, and kind of, you know, embraced all of these feminist principles and, and, and to see this. And so, so the assemblage around which it, it happened is one that I tried to take into account that, you know, it was, it was him who's the celebrity mm-hmm. who, who is coded in a lot of his work as sort of this, you know, um, uh, awkward, uh, you know, guy, and and sort of so he has that like kind of stereotype. Isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That stereotype around him and and some of the characters he plays, and so you know that has to be taken into consideration. And then also the gender norms, where it's this idea of communicating back and forth, and and you know, was that communication clear? Hmm. It likely should have been. Um, there is a lot of interesting research out there about the idea that it's miscommunication is actually very misplaced, that people are very good at reading each other's bodily cues. Mm-hmm. So it was very clear that her autonomy was overridden. Um, but that there is a very real way in, in which potentially having a restorative outlet or a way to for, for the, the woman um, who accused him to get an apology, to get uh, reparation, to get um, a, a sense of justice mm. in a very concrete, tangible way, because this does not, will not work through the courts in any way, um, uh, that, that that would be an ideal way in which to, um, to gain repair and, and to effect repair. Yeah, this is a really good example for the for the book, I guess, because and it's it's the one where is there is the, yeah the most opportunity for both reflecting on a pleasure and care centered eth- ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness, and mm-hmm. also this uh, sen- uh, sense of repair you were talking about, because um, in no way could this have really have gone to court and become a something which is necessarily cast, although there may have been technically a sexual offence committed, I suppose. Um, 
but it is this um it, it is this kind of idea that um there was a real opportunity for this to be like an educative moment like okay by owning up to okay these are the things that i've learned that i could have done differently so um uh, he was kind of relying on this communicative consent and this kind of affirmative consent it seemed like he was kind of asking questions and saying he was saying things like uh, it's no fun if we don't want to do it it's okay if you don't and then using his body to kind of to make her do things um and not read and not reading her body when she was resisting those things stepping away having to go to the toilet and resettle herself but within that agent within that assemblage of the they've been on they are doing this um you know the 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 script of what you're supposed to do in a on a date situation where one person I guess we haven't really talked about his power there, have we? So, yeah, she um, she is somebody who we don't we don't know a great deal about her, but we know that she wasn't a celebrity or didn't have his kind of celebrity power or status. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a bit, in a, in a way, like when I was talking about my fantasy of having a cup of tea at Nigella's house, you know, what could have Aziz have done to recognise that as part of that assemblage? He's famous and also famous for being as cutesy cutesy kind of yeah. progressive guy um, yeah and and i think that um you know there's also this this issue of um that that the otherness that that attending to the autonomy of the the other was was completely overridden yeah. um so so that that you know when we're talking about you know the model that that i'm i'm putting forth that i would say that yes a lot of its principles were violated so what do we do about this and i think what me too tries to do it does funnel into it's it's almost like an indication of wanting or needing restorative alternatives because it's people taking to the internet and saying i want to be heard yeah. I'm going to, um, you know, disseminate w- what happened to me to people and get that kind of affirmation and support. Mm. Um, but that doesn't really transform the structures. And so what I argue is that, you know, there are frameworks that are available in which we can try to explore those alternatives. And, and alternative justice seems to be one that can be more, it can be more attuned to repair. Yeah, because there is that catharsis of Me Too, isn't there? Which is, yeah, everybody on 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 the hashtag talking. Well, that's the whole point of the the expression Me Too is to say, yes, this has happened to me too. Uh, but that, uh, as I was saying at the beginning, that kind of has got stuck, hasn't it? So rather than some of these being, uh, uh, some of these uh, Me Too cases being a way of understanding of well, what yeah, for example. Uh, uh, someone might say, you know, how do you feel about this? Or uh, I can, you know, there is a power dynamic going on here. So just want to put that out there or um, mm-hmm. or how paying attention to all of this during anything that might happen. Somebody's uh, tensing up, someone, someone's rigidity, someone's mirroring what you're doing, some the how alert people feel, you know, paying attention to all of these kinds of um this, the embodied autonomy is mm-hmm. is important, but all all of this kind of gets lost, doesn't it? And so, yeah. um, in the well, of course, because it goes to Twitter, um, I guess this is part of it. Most of this has happened on Twitter, and so that really mm-hmm. narrows down the opportunity for 
for learning, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so I think that the Me Too movement has been fantastic in terms of drawing attention to this and giving us a sense of justice and a sense of, of, of catharsis for mm. people who have been harmed and not being able to have any repair. Um, but it's just, how are we going to, to change this? And, and I really, really want to kind of, in the, in the book I talk about this, it's pushing back against the miscommunication model that, mm. that the, one of the things the, the, that the legal structures require you to do after saying, you know, was consent given or not? And then was the person who was supposed to, you know, usually male, um, to understand or not understand consent, you know, did they did they solicit consent in the way that they were supposed to? Mm -hmm. And under those conditions, you know, could they have? Um, you know, was it miscommunication? Um, and that that's not really a helpful way to think about it because it's difficult to establish. Mm -hmm. But it's also um, it's based on this idea that we don't understand bodily communication very well when it comes to sex, and we actually do. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that has to be, you know, um, really affirmed. Yeah, I mean, that's actually something I talk about in my book with, with young people. If, uh, can we talk about consent? Go buy it, dear listener. Um, <laughs> again, uh, but one more time um, is that, yeah, people. So one of the problems with both communicative consent. Well, I guess one of the problems with affirmative and enthusiastic consent is that people rarely say yes or no to things whether it's to do with sex or anything else, but that everyone knows what a yes or no looks like. Like when research does back that up, that we, we can all see what it is. So when, so when the consent model is saying, okay, you need to get affirmative consent, then what he might have thought or what people might think, well, if she's still there, then she is willing. So, so I can do anything I like as long as she's willing to be there, unless she is bolting out of the door or, you know, calling the police everything i i'm doing so long as i'm getting enthusiastic or affirmative consent this looks like a yes and actually it's a no <laughs> because there's a lot of other things going on other than just words and so but it's that that model that that thing that was that is codified in law and also something became such a part of the discourse of this is the definition of consent that it means that people kind of he could argue that there was affirmative and enthusiastic consent, knowing that there wasn't, but just pushing the boundaries of what he could get away with, right? Yeah, and, and I think also it's this, um, this idea, it puts a lot of burden on the person that consent is being solicited of. So, so it's like, okay, it's, it's the usually uh, the women's uh, responsibility to either give it or not. Mm. And just human nature, we don't like to say definitive no to each other. And, and that's a very difficult thing to even do, you know, if you were sitting down with Nigella and she offered you a biscuit right. and you really didn't want it, or you were, you know, allergic. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, I, you know, there, there would be conditions under which you would be like, yeah, that's fine and suffer the allergy. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so what Nigella could do there is, um, how do you feel about a biscuit? Are there any biscuits you might like? You know, just that kind of um, it's uh, that kind of bringing in the 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 autonomy, but also that care work that which is really an important part of this. And so, and so in this case, there was a just a total lack of um, co-constituted anything really. You yeah. know, one person was wanting something and trying to get the other person to acquiesce to them doing something. 
And so at no point was there any like mutuality or mutual sense of the possibility of a mutual pleasure. Um, and there was no care, you know, <laughs> apart from pouring a glass of wine. And maybe some, there was some care work in, in having a date that there was this, there, was, there wasn't this care centered ethic. So the standard that he was coming into with enthusiastic uh, and affirmative consent. And again, yeah, often women are having to perform a sense of enthusiasm or agreeing to things in order to, to in order to, well, we could also say that she might have been having, well, we don't know, it's, this is probably a reach, but, you know, we know about there being um, the five F's of trauma response and one of them being um, to flop or to to fawn, to go along with, and that in a situation where someone's body is reacting to keep them safe, keeping safe uh, might also mean means remaining in the room. And you make this point in the book. Remains involved might involve remaining in the room, but to an, but to another person that looks like it's well they yeah. they they were trying to make a bullshit argument to say well they were there mm-hmm. and they didn't leave and they could have left at any time. Mm-hmm. This box. Oh, I'm ranting now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if we have this, if we have this kind of if we aimed higher for this and had this as our socio-legal uh, uh, regulation for what we might term consent or what we might hitherto have called consent, not only is uh, is, the, is it is there the possibility of more people having a better time, but also there's, there's greater possibilities for people to actually put things into practice as well, aren't there? Because these are actually practicable useful tools that that you're talking about in in this model and and in your book yeah and and i think that that's the important thing it's it's you know how can we institute these alternatives and kind of learn from them and so looking at um some really great you know organizations like insight for example Mm -hmm. um to to see how we can you know find ways to enact restorative justice so that we're really looking at you know accountability and repair and reintegration of the person as well of 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 both um in in a kind of community context um that that would be more more viable in terms of of getting justice in a society that is unequal yeah yeah and also the individual transformation can also lead to greater yeah. societal transformation you know if yeah. if if people have, have learned how to do consent better and the mm-hmm. consensus continuum is something we can always get better at and something we can always be uh, paying more and more attention to because that brings us more possibilities for mm-hmm. pleasure and care-centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness, then, then there is a greater possibility for, for the society transforms around us too. And and I did want to, you know, I know that that it always happens that there's the person that, that, you know, tries to introduce the limit case. Well, they'll say, well, what about like, you know, the the predator, the sexual predator? Mm -hmm. When are we going to like leave them outside of jail? And I always say like, it's, you know, it's the worst thing to do is make make uh, policy out of extreme cases. That, that that's not sort of what we're doing. Um, and there are kind of, you know, if you are pushed on that idea of like, okay, you've got an extreme, you know, predator, there, there are public health models of, of you know, of, of, of almost like quarantine in a sense, where it's this idea that you are um, dealing with it as a public health issue. And you there's no kind of, you know, any, any kind of, um, incarceration would be 
so limited and it would be based on not taking away from the person so not putting them in like a cell and not you know doing solitary confinement and doing all these things that are just they don't do anything for justice um and yeah completely and the other thing with kind of uh, the the knee-jerk reaction from people who just uh, who don't want to who want to shut down the conversation about abolition is is to be oh so what would happen tomorrow if we got rid of all the police well we need several things to happen uh in in parallel and and over time in order that we get to a place where um prisons aren't prisons but other yeah. other countries do it so norway has yeah. a much less uh carceral system for example if you read mm-hmm. dear listener i've probably talked about this before rutger bregman's humankind talks about this and they they have a completely different model and so we've made the world this way and we could just as easily remake it to mm-hmm. quote david graver i'm throwing people's names around <laughs> this is probably time for me to stop talking um <laughs> tina thank you so much for coming on the show this has been so interesting uh, oh. Is there anything apart from the book? So let's uh, sex. What's your book called? <laughs> sex, <laughs> sex, consent, consent. and justice. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'll put a, a link in the show notes for that. But is there anything else you'd like to plug? Do you want people to follow you on social media? You, you don't have to. Yeah, uh, I'm on on, t- uh, on Twitter um, mm-hmm. at t sika, just t s i k k a, mm-hmm. and at tina sika for Instagram. Mm-hmm. I'm on Facebook as well, just under my my name. Um, and so, yeah, I do, I do post, um, sometimes just other things, but, but yeah, sort of what I'm doing and, um, yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, when the book comes out, um, and everyone can, can take a read and it, it does do a little bit of good. Please do, dear listener. Uh, okay. Thank you, Tina, so much for coming on and thank you for so much for listening. Bye.